to yet another live episode of Behind the Lens during what I refer to as life in the time of COVID. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the lines, talking with the movers and shakers and TV and filmmakers. Uh, and as always, we are here on Adrenaline Radio every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And then afterwards, the show goes out online as a podcast on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, you can find it on Stitcher, on Apple, iTunes, Podbean. It's all over the place after that. And always, it then, after a couple weeks, gets archived on AdrenalineRadio.com as well. However, every single episode you will find... For over six years of episodes, you will find on BehindTheLensOnline.net, along with plenty of movie reviews, interviews, and I'm trying to get those up as fast as I possibly can right now so that you guys have a constant stream of new content, especially with all the films that are now jumping onto the digital VOD bandwagon and foregoing theatrical releases because of the safer at home lockdown situation in the United States right now. One of the, I'm very excited about today's show. Um, it will not have, I pro, it will not have all the hilarity ensuing that happened last week with our good friend, Chad Anthony Miller, who was with us. Uh, but first up, we're going to have my exclusive interview with a dear, dear, dear man, uh, filmmaker, writer, director, uh, whom I adore, Jonathan Jakubowicz. Jonathan, we last heard from Jonathan in the cinematic spectrum a couple years ago with a film, Hands of Stone, the Roberto Duran story in which Edgar Ramirez literally transformed and became Roberto Duran. A dynamic performance, a fascinating film, exceedingly high production values, uh, which I always expect from Jonathan. Well, he's back now with another film, Resistance. It's a very little-known story about Marcel Marceau, the famed French mime. And in, during the years of 1938-39, when Marceau was about 15 years old, he worked with the French Resistance and aided in getting Jewish children out of Nazi-occupied France. It is a compelling story. Jonathan went so far in his research. And one thing about Jonathan is he is a journalist. Um, so he is very, very, very um, honed in with doing proper research and authenticity and fact versus fiction. Um, he actually interviewed Marceau's cousin, uh, George Loinger, who is a Jewish Boy Scout leader. And was involved in in this as well. So um, he went right to the horse's mouth, so to speak, uh, with his research to help him write and then direct this film. Um, as always, it's a fabulous conversation whenever Jonathan and I get together and chat. This time we had to chat by phone, uh, but that's all well and good. You can find resistance on VOD and digital platforms right now. After you hear this uh, 
our exclusive interview with Jonathan, we're going to welcome writer-director Pi Ware uh, live to the show to talk about his new documentary, How Much More Timely and Topical Can We Get Talking About an Infectious Disease? Um, this one, Skin Deep, The Battle Over Morgellons. Um, Morgellons, there is a great dispute. There are many doctors that deem it to be psychosomatic and not a real disease. Uh, the CDC did a study in 2012 that was very flawed. Uh, and yet when you look at microscopic evidence, you look at testing evidence, it is a very, very real disease. And you look at the patients and you hear the patients. So this has been a, a battle. And this is a battle that we have seen play out in some respects uh, with COVID-19. Um, and the initial reports by politicians that it's just a flu. Uh, there's always that sense of denialism with things that people don't know about or don't understand. So I expect this is going to be a very interesting conversation with Pi uh, about how he chose this topic of Morgellons and what he went through in talking to researchers, gaining access, talking to patients, and establishing the battle over Morgellons. But first, without any further ado... Because it is, it's a long interview and we may not even get to get to do the last five minutes or so. But take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Jonathan Jakubowicz talking about resistance and Marcel Marceau. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, hey, hey. I have How missed, I have missed you so much, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. I've been away for a while, but I came back with a movie. That's what matters. You sure have. I mean, you kept telling me, Edgar kept telling me, we're working on a film. We're working on a film. <laughs> Jonathan... This now you know how much I loved Hands of Stone, and I still think they didn't do enough of a push for awards for you guys. But yeah. e even though you and I try, this is masterful. I did not know this story about Marcel Marceau. I did not know this background. This is a fresh look at history, and the way you have laid this out, the story construct, the characters. And it's not so much about Marcel Marceau. He's our entry point into the film. But then you fill this with historical characters and situations that revolve, of which his hand had a play in. And it is so well done. I, I just don't know what to say. I'm in love with it. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. You know, the first time when I, when I saw we were talking... The first thing I thought is there's no way she's going to like this more than Hands of Stone. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you like Hands of Stone more than anyone, I know. And, and I'm so flattered that it seems to be the case with this film. Oh. And it's so exciting to hear. Thank you so much. I'm so proud. You know, even though you didn't have Paula do your sound design here, I'll forgive you for that. No. <laughs> I'll forgive you because you bring back your cinematographer. I mean, you've got your A-team here. You've got Tomas here. Um, you've got Angelo. Everybody is back. And Everybody is back. Yeah, Paula, Paula did help. You know, she watched when she was doing Game of Thrones, you know. I mean, it was very mm -hmm. difficult to bring her. And 
But I worked with Stefan Busch, who's a German sound designer, and he did a terrific job too. And but Paula did gave us advice at some point, so in spirit she was also part of it. And I did Paula. <laughs> but it, it, it's true, everyone's there, you know, my same team, and that's what made it possible, honestly, because we, you know, as you saw the movie, it feels gigantic. <sighs> But it wasn't as gigantic as it feels, and it was only thanks to a cohesive team who love what we do and know each other well and know what each other likes that we were able to pull it off. Well, it it shows with the continuity amongst everything in this film. Number one, the opening. The opening just absolutely killed me. Before we get to any titles or anything, that opening, the family at night, bedtime stories, and how you could do this to Edgar, I, I don't understand. I don't know if I can forgive you for that for the opening. Um, but, <laughs> but you really, through, and it's through the use of sound in particular in that opening, Jonathan, when we hear the commotion after this quiet, peaceful bedtime, the lights are out on Elsbeth. And then you hear this cacophony of terror. And that's what really, that grabs you. That just grabs you, sucks you in. And then we see what Elsbeth's young girl is seeing, what's happening to her parents. Bella, I have to say, is just amazing. The emotion on her face, the tears, so raw, so pure. And here's where... Your editing comes into play as you take us back and forth, but you hold on that face with the sounds and the screams intensifying and gunshots. And then you go to black, and we get the titles. You're hooked. We're sucked in, and you have to watch. It is impossible to not watch this film with after that opening. Thank you, thank you so much. That's those are beautiful words. I mean, I, I, I definitely the the use of off camera violence is a big part of the film. You know, a lot of people watch the film and 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 mention that it was incredibly violent, but there is not a drop of blood in the whole movie. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, most of the violence is off camera. You know, it's psychological and. And I think it's uh, it's part of what works best is when you when you let the, the mind imagine the horror and and I I agree Bella in that scene I mean I you know when I just I discovered the genius of this girl when she did that scene you know because she I knew she was a great actress but when she started reacting in that scene. I, I was blown away. Everybody was looking at each other in the monitor like, oh my God, what did we just see? You know, she's truly a genius actor. I've worked with some of the the best actors in the world, as you know, and I, I have to say she is one of them. You know, I feel like she's like a Kate Blanchett, you know, she's going to be around yeah. in movies for decades. And, and I'm, I feel blessed that I was able to work with her. You know, now that she's so young, because I really think she's going to be around forever. I I totally agree. I mean, because I was familiar with her. She played Lorna Lufton, Judy, and she was fine. Um, But it was not a standout role. It was they needed somebody to be Lorna Luft. And then she was Lyanna in Game, Game of Thrones. But here she really gets to put forth. And we see her go on this whole journey as 
a youth who's a girl who's coming into womanhood trying to find herself and taking on mothering roles and still feel, feeling an attachment to Marcel and and to Emma it's just watching her is just amazing I mean, you scored big with her Jonathan <laughs> thank you Where? thank you no, in, a, in a way with the rest of the cast too I mean it's a really what, what I really work hard is to create an ensemble where every single actor shines you know and, and some of those actors are not, you know, movie stars like Jesse, but they are extremely recognized and veterans in their own countries. I mean, I don't know if you remember Karl Markovic was mm-hmm. the star of The Counterfeiters, yep. which won the Oscar, and, and recently Gisak Rory was the star of Son of Soul, which also won the Oscar and won Cannes. I mean, these are truly some of the best actors in the world and and they are all part of an ensemble and and it's incredible how each of them gets their moment to really shine and I think that's a big part of why the movie connects so emotionally with audiences Mm -hmm. is their their ability to connect well absolutely chilling is Matthias's performance as Klaus Barbie um that is it is absolutely chilling the way he smiles that that mask that's on him and I find that a very interesting contrast with the mask of Marcel uh, when he goes into mime and quiet and it's a very striking counterplay that you have happening in the film with those two characters and I just, I just think it's abs- it's just brilliant, brilliant the way you do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I always found fascinating that Marcel, who is the hero, never thinks of himself as a hero. Mm-hmm. And Barbie, who is the villain, is completely convinced that he is the hero. Yeah. And it, it's something when you do research on Barbie, he never thought of himself as anything but the hero of, of his country and his people all the way to the end of his life, you know, and, and it, it's why you see him interact so gently with his family and his kid and his wife. And, you know, he, he has no regrets because he is convinced he's doing the right thing for his country. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very important because we, we tend to, to dehumanize um, the, the real evil people in history and I think that's counterproductive because what's really scary is that true evil is human and that this these were people with wives with children and I find that a lot more disturbing that the cliche caricature villain that you know is often per, used to portray that era and Matthias is a phenomenal actor. I don't know if you know, but he's a movie star in Germany. Yes, um, yes. But he's a movie star mostly doing comedies. He's, he's a little like um, like a Matthew McConaughey of Germany before Matthew started doing serious roles. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating for this role because that is the essence of Barbie. Every, every testimony you read from even the people he tortured talk about how he was always charming he was always gentle he played piano during tortures i mean there is there is there was a an, a an enjoyment of doing what he was doing that i i found very specific to him 
um, and, and something that differentiated him with other Nazis. And I, I thought it was um, perfect for Matias because he, he's got that face that is initially, when you first look at it, hard to hate. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why he, he's a heartthrob in all the movies that he does. And and that that's what ends up being so disturbing about the character when you realize what he's capable of with the same face. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I I I'm really proud of him and I think he, he's he's gonna be truly people are gonna really pay attention because he's a really great actor and um, movie star looking guy and. And I think he gave us something that's that's not easy to forget. He really did. You know, how did you come upon this story, Marcel Marceau's story, and then all the history that you put into this? This is not a story. This is something that Marceau did, didn't really talk about, this chapter in his life. So it's not like you're sitting down at the breakfast table one day, I think I'm going to tell this story, and I'm going to use Marcel Marceau. So I'm curious how you you came up with this one and then the research that you did to develop the accuracy of this script. Well, I, I, I think I first heard the story that Marcel was uh, involved in saving orphans during the war in the site open culture. I, I think you may have seen it on, on Twitter and online and I immediately could, I mean, I opened my eyes, you know, what? I mean, Marcel Marceau saved children in the war and nobody knows about it. And I started, you know, trying to investigate and Like you said, there's very little information, even though he was recognized with the Medal of Honor mm-hmm. Wallenberg and he was brought into the French Legion for doing it, you know, but there was never a lot of information, but I was able to track down his first cousin, George Loinger, the character that Gisa plays in the movie. And he was 106 when I met him in Paris, and I met him and his son and his niece and the whole family, and we spoke for hours, and they told me a lot of firsthand information because he was at the center of this thing. He mm-hmm. was the, the head of the scout. And after that, I, I knew I couldn't stop, you know, that I had to make this movie. And, and I, I stayed in France for a while. I met with the Clarsfells, who were the old Nazi hunters who captured Barbie. Mm-hmm. I went to the Museum of the Resistance in Lyon, and there's a ton of information there. And, and I, you know, went to the Shoah Memorial in Paris, which also has very important information. And I read a ton of books. I, I don't know if you remember, but I'm also a journalist. So mm-hmm. I, I have a little bit of a systematic approach to investigating history. And, and you know, I spent a long time just doing the research and, and you know, then created the script. Wow. <laughs> it's one of those things that, it's the movie sometimes I feel is better than me <laughs> because so much of it worked organically and so many great people worked in it that I, I truly just feel blessed that I, I was at the quarterback of an incredible team. Mm. I'm curious, Jonathan, how did you decide on the visual palette with the lighting and the lensing that you came up with? I love the contrast Visually, the film is rich, whether we're in dark scenes, which you've got a a rich contrast and saturation, 
But then so much of the film is light, natural light against the darkness, or the use of candles, a lot of candle light when the children are being hidden or when the, they're hiding, the resistance is hiding in the attic. But I'm curious how you came up with the visual design because it is so striking and it belies the horror of the Nazi regime. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think for from the beginning, Miguel, Tomas, the production designer, and my DP were, were together and, and we wanted to avoid the typical, you know, hard, realistic look that the war is usually portrayed with. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we were telling the story of a visual artist. Yes. And um, Marceau's favorite painter was Marc Chagall. And we studied Chagall and studied his color palette. And, and we decided to try to incorporate, you know, that color palette to everything, the wardrobe, the the locations, the, the lighting, and 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 we also did something specific in this film that I've never tried before, but I am very happy with the result. There is a different lens for Klaus Barbie. Mm. We shot we shot with spheric lenses the whole film with with Cook spheric normal lenses, and we shot with anamorphic lenses all the Barbie scenes. So it's it's uh, it's difficult to describe, but if you watch the the experience that you have with a character with anamorphic lenses, is simply different than the one you have with spheric lenses, mm -hmm. and and you know that immediately puts you in a different mind space in every scene that Barbie is present and. And that is, you know, it's sort of, so it's a technical aspect of the photography that became, I, I feel very effective in the film. And, and there is a, there is a thing that you feel that you don't know what it is, but immediately when Barbie arrives, you know, things are going in the wrong direction. Yeah, there's a different feeling the minute he comes on screen, the minute he comes into the train car, the minute you just see him walking or as he's walking up the stairs, with his wife and his infant daughter. There is something different when the minute he gets yeah. on screen. Yeah, well, that's what it is, you know? I mean, the, the, and obviously everything helps a little bit, but even the language is different, but I feel, you know, that the, that's part of the genius of Miguel, my um, DP, you know, who had the, this idea from the very beginning. And, and you know, one thing that you you could ask anybody who works with me is that I trust my team. You mm -hmm. know, you say this is the way, let's go. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. And and of course, I just saw um, what MI did with the Vast of Night as well. Totally different. I right. love his range as a cinematographer, but what he does here is just absolutely gorgeous. No, I'm really, I'm really proud, and I think it's, it's a, it, it was accomplished that you never feel you're watching your typical hard mm -mm. World War II movie. You know, you're watching something that has a little more lyricism, and I think that was essential because that's Marceau. At the end of the day, through his eyes, that we are experiencing this, this event, and it was very important for us to make it poetic. And and I do think, like you said, it helps 
being able to sustain the horror and the tension mm-hmm. with the fact that you what you're watching is simply beautiful. And that's I mean that's the overriding element with this film, Jonathan. It is beautiful to look at. Most people when when you're dealing even even go back to the to the forties, the fifties, when war films were being made and you know, the evil Nazis and they were in black and white and even with the black and white, it was stark and it was you felt the evil. Here you see beauty. Again, similar yeah. to the Matt Marcel's mask of mime, that there is something beautiful beyond the horror. You just have to look for it. And here you bring yeah. it right to the forefront just so beautifully another element of that whole tapestry is angelo's score this is his string work with this score is gorgeous yeah no i i i I, it's my favorite score of angelo my part (laughs) i think he's he he reached a level of it that it's so powerful i mean he it's just so emotional, but also so dark, you know, because we, we always, I mean, the, the only fear I had when approaching this film is to be manipulative, you mm-hmm. know, and because it, they're so, it's so often that you watch a war movie and they're like trying to push your buttons for you to cry in a manufactured way. And I, I feel that's always disrespectful to the to the very event, and I think it often has to do with music, you know, because music it's so easy to turn into sentimental, you know, manipulative. And and Angelo and I work really hard, you know, and, and talked a lot about avoiding that and using the music to represent. Um, the fear of the Nazis more than the feelings that the characters are going so that the feelings speak for themselves and the music is not conveying them in, a, in an artificial way. And I, I think one of the, the things that has me more excited about it is that it's being perceived as non-manipulative. And I'm very grateful because that was my biggest fear. I think the story should speak for itself and and the emotions should come at you um, because of the story and because of what the characters are experiencing, not because I was able to, you know, create some <laughs> manipulative mm-hmm. set of things to bring out your tears, which is, you know, in a story like this, in a way, very easy to do, mm-hmm. but it's 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 the the worst route I feel that you can take. Well, a lot of the string movement I'm here in certain places, it's almost as if the strings are providing it their own tears. Yeah, you don't have we don't you don't have to do anything to evoke tears. There are moments the fear has brought it on through the music and I just think it's so eloquently done and I do think it's the most beautiful thing I've heard from Angelo yeah yeah I tell him every day you know when I watch the movie again because I need to check some technical aspect to make sure the DCP is good or not I'm blown away by the music every time (laughs) I have to ask and I'll be honest I have never been that big a fan of Jesse Eisenberg I respect what he does he gives fine performances. You won me over with Jesse in this role. I am totally amazed by what he does. I was totally engrossed in the character. He must have rehearsed 
to be able to do some of the miming that he did because it is it is priceless to watch and then his facial expressions the childlike joy that was connecting with the children i have never liked him in a performance as much as i just really really like him here that's amazing i'll tell him that <laughs> um I, 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 when I chose Jesse was because of that, because of, uh, either some people love to hate him because of how evil in his performances he can be. Mm -hmm. And, and he's very efficient in, in that. But I felt that this character is in a way the opposite of a lot of the roles he played because of how genuinely un unselfish the character becomes. And I, you know, Jesse's mother was a professional clown. He, he grew up watching his mother paint her face white to go to work. And he also lost relatives in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And this movie was very personal for him too. And, and he did work with a mime for like seven months. And, and the mime who was actually for two years studying with Marceau in the Marcel Marceau School of Mining in Paris. Mm -hmm. And he worked really hard and he practiced and and he but at the end of the day what was really magical it was his connection with the children because we we all we decided very early on that regardless of how much ability he could get as a mime, what really matters is how what is the effect he creates on the children and and I he you know he's a father, I'm a father. Our kids were on set playing with the kids in the in the movie. <laughs> you know, it became a a big family, and and when you see the real emotions that the kids are going through when he's doing his pantomimes, they are going through them. You know, and so is Jesse because Jesse is reacting to how much they're liking his show, and I think that's what you see that that you that he won you over because you don't see the the character Jesse knows how to play so so well you see a Jesse who is genuinely moving mm -hmm. by the story and and by the this this children and and it was an incredible experience and, and I'm, I'm really I really can't wait for people not only his fans but people like you who have you know always respected him but have never completely bought his genius as a yeah. performer to really rediscover him and realize how how far he can go and how much range he has because I I I knew it from the beginning but I he went even further when we were doing it and I think it's inevitable to completely fall in love with him and, and he creates this emotional relationship with the character in the audience that I'm I'm really excited to share and, and um, what you said is exactly what I was dreaming would happen to to those who feel like like you did. And you know I'm a tough sell, so. I know. <laughs> you know, were there any great challenges? I mean, I know you shot in the Czech Republic. Did you face any kind of logistic challenges with this film? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was a logistic challenge <laughs> because it's that. Uh, I mean, we shot in five different cities, you know, because, I mean, we shot in the Czech Republic and in Germany. We shot in Prague and Liberec, which are two cities in, in the Czech Republic. In Prague, we shot a lot of the exteriors that recreate France. 
Liberec, we had to shoot the train station interior because that's where that was the only period looking train station that we could use. Um, and then we move into Germany to shoot in a town called Krona, where we were given that castle where they hide at the beginning, um, pretty much for free by the city. Nice. And then, and then we went to Nuremberg and to Munich. You know, in Nuremberg we shot other exteriors, and in Munich we shot the forest. You know, and the Alps and all that stuff. Munich is right next to the Alps, and and we were able to to recreate that in a couple of forests and so it was very very ambitious and uh, a very difficult shoot and it was like a traveling circus you know going from all the cities james bond usually shoots in five cities <laughs> <laughs> not jonathan jacobowitz <laughs> the forest scenes are so beautifully done I was curious where you shot them, so I'm happy to know where you shot them because I really liked the perspective, the POV that you were giving, and when the camera is up in the tree, we got, I don't know if you were droning or technocraning and shooting down to give us the perspective from the kids and Marcel up in the tree, but so well done. And then you bring in uh, your VFX, obviously, your post work with the fog and layering in more snow and thing, and it just it looks fabulous and you're on the edge of your seat while you're watching this entire sequence yeah no i'm really really proud of that sequence and and by the way the visual effects team is also the same from hands of stone you know i mean it's probably the same family um the there we used a lot of different tools for that forest i mean it, it was a big challenge because when you have children on a tree, you know, you, you know, you talk about logistic complications. There's nothing that can make people more nervous than children on a tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you got to make sure there is absolutely no way that they could fall. So they were all rigged uh, by a very professional team of stunts. And, and, but it's, not, it's also time consuming, you know, yeah. just getting each of those kids to that branch and, Know, choosing the tree and respecting the tree because it's like a 400 year old tree you can't touch it you know and and also i mean on top of things because we live in a world with global warming there was no snow so we had we had to use fake snow you know for a lot of the scenes and we had to use this phenomenal company called uh, snow business from the uk and they did Narnia, you know, so they know how to do snow. <laughs> um, but I mean, this guy, the owner, uh, fell in love with the story and basically came himself and helped us put snow everywhere. And it was it was very difficult, but also very exciting because we were able to shoot with a level of scope that you know, if you were shooting in in real snow, would have been impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day kids running in snow at night also had challenges but if the snow is something you can control it suddenly becomes more possible and and i feel like that sequence when they're running is so intense and Mm -hmm. at the same time so beautiful that i i I think in a way we ended up working better than if we had had the snow that you usually would get in germany Mm -hmm. you know by the end of november and the camera angle as they're running after they've been discovered. That camera angle where they're all running and dispersing at the camera, 
really that was really nerve wracking watching that. Yeah, yeah, that was. I think you're talking about a steady cam that goes sideways, right? Yeah. Like next to them. Yeah, that's that's my favorite shot. I think of the whole sequence. Um, you and I clearly have the same taste. Yes, we do. And that was the bulk of our exclusive interview with writer-director Jonathan Jakubowicz talking about resistance. The full interview will be up on the whole, the audio, the entire audio will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net tonight. Again, you can see resistance. It is on digital platforms on uh, on on-demand, VOD. Stars Jesse Eisenberg is Marcel Marceau. Clemency Posey is uh, his love interest and a fellow resistance member. Emma Bella Ramsey, outstanding as the young girl, Elsbeth, who we first meet and who becomes an integral part. So it's through her eyes and through Marceau's eyes that we really see this story unfold. Matthias Schweighoffer as Klaus Barbie is outstanding. And Ed Harris gives an amazing turn as General Patton. Uh, So put that definitely while you're sitting at home looking for things to watch. That's one of them. And right now we're going to switch gears and a big welcome to Pi Ware. Hi, Pi. Hi, Debbie. Is it Debbie Lynn or Debbie? Just plain old Debbie. All right. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, I am thrilled to have you on and Talk about a timely documentary to have out right now. Yeah, there's diseases on people's minds. Uh, dis- uh. <laughs> it, it certainly is. And one of the interesting things about Skin Deep, the battle over Mor- Morgellons, is the, the real process. Because as I said at the top of our show today, whereas you're focusing on doctors that are saying it's psychosomatic, it's all in, their, it's all in somebody's head, they don't really have this. But then there is scientific evidence that says, no, this truly does exist. This is an infectious disease. It is bacterial caused. Um, Very similar to what we went through and still go through to a degree with COVID. Ah, it's a flu. It's nothing. No, there's no such thing. And slowly information comes out and uh, people are learning more and more about vaccines and diagnosis and testing. So... If anybody is going to to watch this film now, this documentary now, you've already got people now that have a little bit of base knowledge going in to the process. Yeah, I think I think that the the kind of denialism that exists around the COVID nineteen pandemic is similar to, but a little bit different than yeah. than Morgellons disease. What I also think that that's that's key. And recognizing Morgellons disease is that the CDC, you know, is thought of many times as infallible within the medical community. And, and we all saw how the first set of tests that the CDC released to the world were faulty. So yes. there's wide coverage in the media that the CDC has made a public mistake. They are fallible. They're not 100% right 100% of the time. And the big problem with Morgellons disease is that the CDC's study uh, that they published in 2012 was, it basically dismissed Morgellons disease as something that didn't have a biological source. And so people believed that. Um, but now that it's been publicly proven how fallible the CDC is, perhaps 
the public opinion will be such that the CDC can revisit a Morgellon study and actually define the population correctly this time when, mm-hmm. they, when they look at the disease. And, you know, and this is nothing new. And, you know, the big thing here boils down to you have doctors that are saying, you know, and I, I've got to tell you, it, it's like your primary doctor that you've got in here, the dermatologist that we're following. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just wanted to slap him upside of his head, um, <laughs> especially when he said there's no such thing as a bad doctor. Um, you know, I went through similar with my mother decades and mm-hmm. decades ago and doctors were saying no that all of her symptoms everything that was wrong with her was all in her head and then they started doing endocrinological studies which hadn't mm-hmm. really been done until really in the 1960s and then they realized oh my god guess what she really is sick um yeah. so to, to actually and, and witness kind of this the... The, the cycle, isn't it, that this medical denialism of like, hey, you're, you're a patient, you come into my doctor's office, and I see you, and I'm confused by your symptoms, it doesn't make sense with what I've already learned, and therefore it must be your fault, and I victim blame you, yes. and you're not really sick, it's in your head. And it's a, and it's a knee-jerk reaction that's existed for, um, you know, multiple sclerosis, for chronic Lyme disease, for fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. for chronic fatigue syndrome, or yep. encephal, you know, myalgic encephalomyelitis. And it exists for Morgellons disease as well, where people come in with confusing symptoms. They, they have lesions on their body. They have fibers growing out of their skin, which is very weird, granted. And, and so... There, and, and also, there are other symptoms that are shared with something like delusions of parasitosis, where folks actually think that there are bugs in their skin, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's confusing, and there's decent reasons why a dermatologist might think that this is psychologically based. But with a bit of investigation, first off, with a physical exam, which many times is denied the patients who walk into a dermatologist's office because they say the words Morgellons disease, and that's such a, there's such a strong prejudice against yeah. Morgellons disease patients within the dermatological community that they just don't get a physical exam. So with a little bit of digging... Uh, excuse the pun, but with a little bit of, you know, <laughs> investigation into what's going on with somebody, um, you can find out that this is actually an infection, and then it can be treated. Now, the treatments need to be improved because the antibiotics that are used to treat this are successful sometimes, but mm-hmm. um, usually it's, it's, the, the success is limited, and so treatment needs to be improved. Well, absolutely. Now, Obviously, the big question for everybody is, what led you to this relatively unknown and, for the most part, you know, dismissed disease? It's not the kind of thing that just springs up in the topic of conversation. Um, so, yeah, curious. mine was like a circuitous route to to, to finding this. I I grew up when I was a kid. I had an uncle who had a terrible ulcer, and he used to eat. A baby food at dinner, and when we were kids, we're like, "That's weird, Uncle Ray's eating baby food," <laughs> and that was because his ulcer was so terrible. And the treatment that they had prescribed to him, which was Freudian psychoanalysis, um, you know, that wasn't helping. Mm-hmm. Um, but the belief at the time was that his ulcers were caused by stress, um, because they'd see people get angry and stressed out, and then their their symptoms would get worse. And they're like, "Well, that must be the cause." Um, and they didn't listen to this gastroenterologist from Perth, Australia, who's named Barry Marshall, who had found that most ulcers are caused by a bacterial mm-hmm. infection, specifically H. pylori bacteria. 
and it took him a couple decades to convince the world that that is what was causing ulcers. And as a you know, as someone growing up and being taught that bacteria can't exist in the gut for very long at all, and then becoming somebody who goes into a yogurt, I mean, into a into a, like a grocery store and picks up a yogurt and then sees all about how bacteria exists in the gut and, mm-hmm. and how the gut biome is the big thing in 2019 and 2020. Like, yep. I just thought, you know, there's this, it, 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 it should be so simple. If there's new evidence, people should judge it on its own merit, and then they should realize how medicine has evolved and we understand the body differently. But that's just not how medicine works. Mm-hmm. And there's this denialism that exists, and it existed with um, global warming, which yeah. I was taught at the University of Virginia, where Barry Marshall was teaching in the 90s. Um, that global warming was a hoax, and then later, you know, I learned that that wasn't true. And so when I looked up chronic Lyme disease, which I had been inspired to investigate by a documentary called Under Our Skin, made mm-hmm. by Angie Abrahams Wilson, I found Morgellons disease because about six percent of all Lyme disease patients suffer from Morgellons, right? And so there's a huge link between Morgellons between and them, Lyme yeah. disease. And I thought, well, Morgellons is like the ultimate case of something's really wrong here. Because either there's a whole population of people who are just totally crazy and, <laughs> and hallucinating fibers within their skin, or the medical industry is in another cycle of denialism. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, once you decided on this topic, your approach to this through the documentary, I have to commend you on. It is a very objective approach. You're showing both sides of the debate. Um, including the history of medical arrogance. Um, I particularly like some of your visuals where we're actually seeing under the microscope and you have patients, you have people talking, saying, look, look, that's not hair. That's a f- those are fibers on the skin. It's, it's coming off the skin. Um, so you really give people the visual aids to, make their, to start asking questions themselves. But the way you play this out, so balanced in the presentation, everybody can arrive at their own conclusion. Um, of course, I'm sure that there will be a lot of people throwing shoes and books and things at the screen when they hear Dr. Feldman talk. Um, <laughs> I hate to say it. I hate to say it. He comes off as an affable guy when you first meet him. Uh, but by film's end, you really, when he's presenting at a, at a conference... You really just you just want to break the TV. Let's face the mean, screen. He's, a, he, he's one of the most fascinating people I've met in that. You know, he told me several times that he became a doctor not because he's a people person, but because <laughs> he does well on standardized tests. <laughs> and so once he graduated and became a doctor and started seeing patients, he realized that he didn't have the social skills necessary to get good reviews on websites. So he had to. Um, create a persona that, and that persona would have empathy. And so, you know, we show in the film how he kind of does like a scripted interaction with uh-huh. most patients to create an illusion of empathy and concern, um, which is great, I think, for, you know, a five or ten minute, um, a five or ten minute session with your dermatologist mm-hmm. if you have psoriasis that he's seen a yeah. hundred thousand times before. But the problem with a, with a false sense of empathy is when you get an exceptional case or you go and give a presentation as he does to a Morgellons conference in Austin, Texas, and you say some tone-deaf things 
and then people react very strongly and uh yeah you know it's a, it's quite a scene uh, it, it was quite a scene of what you captured on camera at that conference in Austin Texas um there were people there that I thought were going to throw things at him as he was talking <laughs> You know, how did you go about breaking this down, finding your through line? Obviously, you've got a great character in Feldman. Um, but then you also have a great character in your nurses. Um, yeah. You you know, there again, you have a, in Cindy Casey, you've got a great mm-hmm. character in Cindy. Very likable. Very, she's very determined. She's very passionate. Um, so how do you develop that through line then? And gather all the research material at the same time to develop that through line. Well, that's those are the questions that I ask myself every day, right? In the <laughs> edit bay, like how do we create, you know, have parallel stories and also and and um, show the show the science without boring people, um, but also how can we show the human stories without right. devolving into sentimentalism and so or sentimentality and and. And that we, you know, just balance, just try to balance it. I mean, I think it's just a, um, you know, we would switch around the way we told the story, you know, once we started. We used to start with Cindy's story at the mm-hmm. beginning of the film and then found that that kind of uh, wasn't as balanced because it, as soon as we, if you introduced the doctor after introducing the patient, you had less, emp- the, the audience, our test audiences had less empathy for the doctors and and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of present something that, like you said, he's he's affable in the beginning, and yeah. then by the end, you you may have changed your mind. And it, it, I think that's a more um, natural way to understand medical arrogance, mm-hmm. um, because I think it's something that I don't think um, doctors are evil in any way. I think they're for the most part they're really trying to help. But um, when authority is challenged within um, certain personality types, it, you don't always get a good reaction. You know. Yeah. <laughs> As we've seen throughout history, whether you say the the sun revolves around the earth or vice versa, you know, and the church comes down on you for well, we see um, it every day in press conferences now. So, <laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> preaching to the choir. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's you know, it's the 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 storytelling structure was always something that I had in, in my mind, and I've used I've made narrative films before, and I've, mm-hmm. I I work a lot in television too, and so I've used certain just structural guidance uh, that I've learned in the past to, to try and create something that would feel balanced and entertaining at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, this all of this took place over, what, a four-year, four-and-a-half-year period, Pi. Mm-hmm. So um, were you editing as you went? Did you get all your footage at the end and then start assembling it? What was that process like? Because I find this very interesting that you come out of a very extensive editing career. Uh, is there any yeah. is there any reality or competition show you haven't edited yet? Uh, <laughs> you I was do just the- watching Making the Cut last night. That was really well done. Uh, love to work on that. But no, I've, yeah, I've edited a lot of, of competition reality and concerts and, you know, yeah. um, that keeps me at the avid or... or at the edit bay a lot. So when I made Skin Deep, um, I was showing 
well, first off, it's a documentary, right? So mm-hmm. funding for documentaries is difficult. So you always have to be fundraising. And then second of all, it's a documentary about a disease no one really knows about. Um, and if they do know about it, so many times it's dismissive. So I had to go to the grass, to a grassroots fundraising campaign within the community, within the more generalist community. And so I needed to show them that, hey, I'm taking a balanced approach. Yes, I'm going to show both sides, but I am going to be empathetic and show your stories. And so I got the support of the community. And then as I went along, I would edit. So I would get a little bit of footage, and then I'd put together like a sample reel and, and sort of test my storytelling uh, structures and tone with uh, the general population, but also mostly with the Morgellons disease uh, community. And and so I got, to, you know, I did a bunch of little little sort of rough drafts, little short films along the way, and that was really helpful to kind of allow myself to make the mistakes that you make in your first and second and third drafts and then evolve into something that works. Mm-hmm. No, because I think I, I love how it's, how it's cut. You've got a good pace going through in addition to the objectivity that you present, but you never lose sight of the positions of either side of the coin. Um, and I think well, that, you. I think that's very important because so often it, you can see documentaries of this nature and they go off on a tangent into one particular aspect. And you don't do that here. You, there's so many aspects to medicine, to research, to you know, finding diseases, identifying diseases. And you really distribute that. You don't get hung up on one thing. Well, that's, that's, that took a bit of doing, too. And it's also, I think, the... I have a, you know, uh, some collaborators that I work with, and in particular the cinematographer director, Sam Price Waldman, who I would show cuts to, and, 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 and Tom Putnam also helped me edit this, mm-hmm. he's a filmmaker as well, um, and, and, and we would try and find the balance there, uh, not getting hung up, but also um, trying to show, you know, it's a, it's a, in the end I think it's an advocacy film, but it's not a traditional advocacy film where you just take one side and push it and just say, hey, we're presenting this side of the argument, and we'll let the world present the other side. I wanted to present both sides and show the reasons why Morgellons disease might be dismissed. In other words, folks will take the term Morgellons disease, and they'll apply it to whatever's going on in their heads. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they don't have fibers growing out of their skin, and they don't have lesions, and they're not true, quote-unquote, Morgellons patients, but they'll take the term Morgellons disease and they'll get on the Internet and they'll say, hey, this is the government using chemtrails to put nanotechnology into your brain via your skin to, yeah. so they can control your mind. And it's a, such an outlandish claim that if that gets out on the Internet, and it is a popular video on YouTube, um, the general public can start to believe that this is just a bunch of crazy talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wanted to present that because sometimes there's also folks who show up at the Austin um, at the Austin conference, and they and they are less than credible, but they claim to have Morgellons disease, and and I wanted to show that, even though a lot of Morgellons disease patients were like, "Why would you show that? That makes us look bad." And it's not that I wanted to make that side of the argument any less potent. I, you know, because I do think there is a real bacterial infection there. Yes. Yeah. But I wanted to show why doctors would dismiss it, mm-hmm. and that we need to have patients so that we can bring everybody around and slowly turn this ship into the direction of understanding that there is a real bacterial infection mm-hmm. And that same theory applies to every disease 
out there. Uh, that that same argument can apply to everything. Um, you, right. You've got to be able to turn the ship to let people see that when something is legitimate or or contra when it's not. Uh, and yeah. you do such a good job of that here. Um, I've got to ask. You, I've got to ask you, Pi. One wouldn't really expect to have appropriate scoring with a documentary like this, yet you do. Um, talk to me about the music, Andrew's Andrew Gross's music that you have in here. I'm glad you mentioned Andrew Gross's music because, honestly, that is one of my absolute favorite parts of the film. I feel like honored to have a film that he could compose music for because he's great just as a composer. But the other nice thing was we had a lot of time to, to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, so he could compose a lot of different things. It's like editing, right? You, you know, your first, your second, your third draft, maybe it'll be good, probably not. And so Andrew got to delve into his, his talent over time and really eke out some musical themes and some instrumentation that that um, we talked about to echo some of the the themes of the film. Mm-hmm. So he uses a lot of arpeggiated um, keyboards, vintage keyboards, to kind of get the science feel, technology yes. feel, and and play that against um, instruments like the harp um, and this um, guitar. This I forget the name of this guitar, but uh, Gustavo Santolaya uses it a lot in his films. Uh, or uh, that he composes for, and 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 um, we really liked that the tone of that because it it led us into the human aspect because one of the great themes is sort of like technology versus belief and mm-hmm. evidence versus belief and how it seems like um, scientists can be victims to prejudice just as much as the regular population and how that is the biggest problem here with Morgellons disease. So I. I love his music, and we actually released the um, soundtrack itself. If anyone watches the film, um, you can, you know, send us a message via social media, and we'll and we'll give you a free copy of that uh, soundtrack because I'm so proud of it. And it'll be released, I think, in a couple of weeks uh, for the general public because it's it's really fantastic music, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned it. And, and I'm guessing people will be able to go to the MorgellonsMovie.org website to be able to order that when it gets released. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I think it'll be on Spotify. Um, it is on, actually, it's on Bandcamp uh, right now, so uh, <laughs> that's available. Yeah, but Morgellonsmovie.org is, uh, is where you can find out sort of all the information of how to get the film and uh, the latest news and whatnot. Well, right now, everybody can see it. It's on VOD, digital, mm-hmm. and DVD as well. You didn't Absolutely. get a four wall. You got a three wall. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was tough, man. We were going to have this big premiere at Cleveland Film Festival, um, which is, you know, Cleveland's a big medical town with Cleveland yes. Clinic there and they're a sponsor of the festival. And we were going to have this big sort of coming out to the medical industry via Cleveland. And, you know, coronavirus just canceled all that. So um, that's terrible. But the silver lining is everybody's home watching digital films and uh gravitas ventures is uh right that's our distributor and they decided to release right on march 31st so that it's it's timely in a way Mm -hmm. where people's minds are on disease and it's and they're interested in science 
um, and their home. And, and so you, and you lucked out getting Gravitas. I'm a huge supporter of Gravitas Ventures because they do come in and they pick up little indies, be it documentaries, be it narratives, that might otherwise be overlooked by some mm-hmm. of the bigger distributors. And Gravitas gets it out there. You know, they, I know they always try and give you a one-week theatrical release when possible, but, boy, it goes out there to digital. It is on every platform. It is on all your VOD, including Comcast, who is sometimes behind the curve on things. Uh, but, no, you really lucked out with Gravitas as your distributor. Yeah, they've been great, super supportive of the film. I, You know, when I made, when I, like I said, I've done little... Um, sample pieces that I'd sent out to the community. But when we finished the 90-minute version of the film, uh, I went straight to Gravitas. and Because and, and, I knew that they would sort of understand the importance of bringing this mm-hmm. issue of Morgellons disease and the denialism surrounding it to the larger conversation about our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And they did. And we immediately hit it off. And they've been very supportive. And, and now it's out on all these platforms. Yeah, well, great. We're almost out of time here, but I've got to ask you, you know, how important is it to you when you step, when you put a director's hat on, how important is all of your editing experience? Does that help you when you're crafting, when you're sitting down and doing interviews? Does it help you when you're shooting footage, um, you know, a Feldman speaking at a convention or something? You know, what, yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely essential to understand editing if you're a director. So, when you're out in the field and you know that you have to shoot entrances and exits, even if it's a documentary, right? So you have these things in mind. It's so much easier. You don't miss essential stuff most of the time because you know what the basic building blocks are within the editing room. And Mm -hmm. in fact, with nonfiction, you'll see a lot of editors get writing credit um, because they are directing, basically, in post-production. Um, so it's a very similar thing and it's nice to, it's a, it's a real, you know, directing is, is how you get gray hair. Directing is how <laughs> you stress out and to have an editing background gives you a foundation where you don't have to worry as much, uh, because you'll, you'll get, um, you'll get the right shots and you'll, you'll realize, um, you know, uh, that the building blocks are essential and you don't get pulled into too many tangents or excited, um, and, and also, yeah, during the interviews, you'll know, like, oh, that person needs to repeat that phrase, but I got that one word he said in the last sentence, which I'll be able to cut in over this other <laughs> sentence, so he doesn't repeat that phrase. You know? <laughs> the mind reels. The editing mind mm. reels. Indeed. Oh, Pi, I can't thank you enough. I could talk to you forever about this and about editing and directing. Um, again, this is an excellent documentary. Uh, it really is. It's eye-opening, empathetic. It re- it's and it opens a really g- compelling discussion, particularly in our time right now. Um, and I'm glad you made the film. Well, thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate it. Um, I, you know, I've made it with all my heart, and uh, you know, trying to get. Uh, the most empathy and and empirical science that I could into the mix. Well, go back, make another one, and come back on the show so we can chat again. Would love to. Thanks for having me, Hi, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was Pi Ware. You can see Skin Deep, The Battle Over Morgellons, right now, VOD, digital, DVD. 
Resistance, Jonathan Jakubowicz's film. It is on platform, all the digital and VOD platforms right now. And a lot of great films are out there while you're sitting at home during life in the time of COVID. Check out The Other Lamb, Not for the Faint of Heart, fascinating film. Uh, also, if you want a fun film, it'll cost you $2.99, but it's out there on the different digital platforms. Film from 1979, America-thon, starring John Ritter, Harvey Korman, Richard Shaw, Jay Leno, Meatloaf, Peter Riger, Nancy Morgan. It has been a fave film of mine since 1979, and it really speaks to the comedy of the country. So that is all the time we have today. We're four minutes over, and Pam's making faces at me. So we'll be back next week. We've got a few guests lined up. We're going to be talking Butt Boy. Seriously, there is a movie named Butt Boy coming out. That's next week. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 